So, how long have you been Ant-Man again? Not long. It just sort of happened. I wish I could fight bad guys like you. I seem to mess it up almost every time. Maybe you just need someone watching your back. Hi. Like a partner. Dr. Pym, I actually heard what happened to you. You opened up the quantum realm. That's when this crazy could be ghost who like walks through walls and stuff. Stole your tech. And now she wants to take over the world or whatever. Who would have believed that in your hour of need, you would turn to us? Not me. Because I mean, we robbed you. Do you remember? That's us. The only chance we've got is both of you. Ant-Man and the Wasp teaming up. Follow my lead. She seems more intense. You go low, I'll go high. I have wings. Why would I go low? We're gonna die. I don't wanna die. We didn't die! Hey, what'd I miss? We were just tiny! I was partners with Hank on a project called Goliath. How big did you get? My record, 21 feet. You? 65 feet. 65. If you two are finished comparing sizes... 65. Hello, everybody, and welcome to. I almost said, "Is it yours?" You know that. <laughs> welcome to Back to the Bins. I'm Paul Spataro, and I am joined today. First time in bins. Uh, you know what? We, I, I think I was on an episode. Uh, I don't know. Maybe it wasn't. Is it Jaws? I remember talking to you about X Men Apocalypse. We did like a roundtable, but maybe that was a no. Is I think it Jaws I, episode. I'm not 100 percent sure, but I think it may have been a bins. Okay. I think, I think that may that may predate. Is it yours? Mm, yeah, could be. I'm not. Sure, I'm not 100% sure, but now, yeah, now that you mentioned it, I think it may have been bits. But anyway, for either his first or second time on Back to the Bins, it's my buddy Ryan Daly. Welcome aboard, I'll, Ryan. Thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me. Uh, I I did suggest this topic, so it wasn't. It wasn't. I did kind of like rope myself into this one, but yeah, absolutely. Thank you for having me. No, I'm, I'm glad you suggested the topic. This is another yet another time where a new movie was coming out and we should be doing a score, but we just kind of got wrapped up doing other stuff and uh, never got around to it. And you, the last time we spoke, uh, you know, you said, are you planning to do a uh, score for Ant-Man and the Wasp? And I said, I am now. 
<laughs> so, well, you had to get that timely Venom score episode out in time. <laughs> hey, you know, I only have about three more months before that movie opens. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I, you know, so we, we, this episode will air, I guess, two weeks after the movie opened because we're recording it less than less than a week after it opened. But uh, there's a uh, Steve Ditko episode that's coming up. In between wow. uh, the opening of this movie and this score episode. Gotcha. So that'll be this coming Saturday, and then the week after, you'll be hearing this. Once again, touching on the wonderful world of tra- time travel that is podcasting. <laughs> but uh, again, this is a score episode on Ant-Man and the Wasp. We've already done a score episode on Ant-Man before that came out. Uh, but... You know, this is a little different, and we were just talking before we started to record uh, about how this is coming on the heels of Infinity War. And I remember when we when we did the, I guess we did that as an Is It Yours uh, episode on Infinity War, and we were talking about it, and uh, you know the 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 concept that we came up with at that time, or the uh, thought we came up with was. Following Infinity War, we didn't want something with that same level of intensity, mm-hmm. uh, and and this is a nice change of pace to that. And I think that may have been a slight, you know, one of the few and very slight missteps uh, that Marvel Cinematic Universe has made was following the initial Avengers movie, uh, they came out with Iron Man three, which was almost disappointing. And when I first saw it in the movies, I was disappointed with it. And part of the reason was I was expecting almost it to to continue the same narrative as we got in Avengers. And it Mm -hmm. did have some threads that continued, you know, the whole PTSD thing and all. Right. But it kind of felt like a letdown because it didn't give me the feeling I was looking for. Now, in this instance, Clearly, they're not going on the same thread, uh, and you're in a, you have me at an advantage because you've seen it already, and I'm going to see it shortly. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, just from the trailer alone, you know, it's, it's, it appears that it's more lighthearted, uh, and it certainly you know appears to be a different tone than what we got in Infinity War, and I think that's a positive at this point. Yeah, and actually, just going back really briefly to what you were saying about the follow-up from the original Avengers. I remember thinking at the time, and I think it was a kind of a discussion among some you know, of our fan circles, because Avengers drops in 2012. In 2013, you've got Iron Man 3, and then a few months later, Thor The Dark World. Those are the first two movies that come out. Now, I think both of those movies are fun and have some rewatch value, but I do think they are among the worst of the MCU movies. And it's just kind of unfortunate that those were the follow-ups. But there was some discussion after Avengers came out that did that kind of spoil the superhero movie? Like, can you have a solo a superhero movie now without the team? Because after those came out, Captain America, the Winter Soldier, now in addition to being a great movie – had a little bit of an ensemble team feel because you saw Cap and Black Widow together. They introduced the Falcon, Nick Fury showing up. So there is a little bit more of a, a kind of mini Avengers team. And I think that helped bolster the feeling that people were getting from that movie. So yeah, sometimes it can be really tricky to, to follow these movies with, with a movie that is very different tonally. And Ant-Man and the Wasp is very different from Avengers Infinity War. Um, but I think, 
Avengers Infinity War left people such with such like a feeling of being gut punched and kind of miserable, but in a very good and satisfying way um, that I think that they do kind of need a palate cleanser. And that's what Ant-Man and the Wasp is. It is a fun, relatively lighthearted movie. Fairly, I mean, it can't help but be comparably lesser stakes than the end of half of the human race that is in Infinity War. But, um, yeah, I think if you like the first Ant-Man, you'll like Ant-Man and the Wasp. They're very similar in tone. I think the story in the sequel is actually a little bit tighter. Um, but they, there are some ways that kind of, we, I, I don't want to give a full movie review, but I'll just say that, yeah, it is, it's a fun movie, very different tone, very different feel from, uh, Infinity War, but that is not a bad thing. That's, that might be a necessary thing. I think you used exactly the same terminology that I had used when we were talking about the trailer, when you said it's a uh, palate cleanser. Yeah. I, I I think I used that same exact word, those same exact words to describe it following uh, seeing the trailer. Mm-hmm. And like you said, I, I think that is a positive at this point. And I think it's not so much the movie as it is the expectations. Mm-hmm. I think when you know you come in and you're expecting truly a follow-up to Avengers, Avengers: Infinity War, if that's what you're anticipating, and if you got a light-hearted movie, you might walk away disappointed. Uh, you know, we've talked on Is It Yours a few times about how anticipation of the movie sometimes, at least in the short term, influences your review of it. Mm-hmm. You know, because you know if you're expecting one thing and you get something totally different. You know, you're not going to be, you're just not going to be happy with that. Sure. Yeah. So that's, you know, that's. Uh, but like I said, I, I think, uh, I, I think it's it's an interesting perspective when you say that, you know, the the solo hero adventure as opposed to the team, uh, you know, could have could have been an issue following the Avengers just because of again, you know, the expectations people would have. Right. Right. And I mean, at that point, like, especially for people who aren't necessarily steeped in the lore of the comics and and more or less the the language of superhero comics where you have team books and you have solo books you know it, I, I I talk to people who've never read comic but when they're watching Thor they're like why doesn't he just call Iron Man or Captain America to help him out like if if the dark elves are gonna destroy all of reality why doesn't he call back up it's like uh, I, I, well that, that, you know that is a valid point and mm-hmm. I, I've you know, I've heard that many times, not only with the movies, but even in the comics, where, you know, in the solo adventures, where it's like, well, you know, Captain America is up against these, you know, insurmountable odds. Why doesn't he just call on the Avengers? And I think they have to at least sometimes pay lip service to this is why I'm not. Mm-hmm. And I think they often do. I mean, certainly in Thor Ragnarok, they had no problem with that. Right. Uh, but, I mean, I think there's... Uh, we we just recently covered and it's not it hasn't aired yet so you certainly you definitely haven't heard it Dave Weeder and I uh, covered and it's going to be aired sometime in the not too distant future uh, a Daredevil storyline where it was six issues we covered it over three episodes and it is a significant plot that's going on involving the country mm-hmm. and at at one point you know the the they say you know oh the the main villain. Uh, 
says that he planted a bomb underneath uh, the island of Manhattan or something like that. So the Fantastic Four and Avengers can't get involved un- until they know that it's a hoax, because otherwise they, they threaten to set it off. <laughs> and I thought, what a dopey answer that is to why they're not getting involved. <laughs> yeah. So, so, so the Fantastic Four hear this, this bogus threat of a bomb, and they're going to just sit in the Baxter building and not even come out. And, I, you know, me. <laughs> That that might be a failing in the storytelling when you understand that you are part of the shared world. You kind of have to keep the threat real reasonable for what your hero can accomplish. Because, like I, I've I've heard the complaint, you know, it's like oh, like when I try to defend a character like Ant Man, who, I, you know, I'm maybe one of six people who really liked the character of Ant Man before the movie came out. Like, I was more excited for that movie than I was for Age of Ultron the year that those were coming out. Because I mm-hmm. liked Ant-Man. I liked that character. But people are always like, Ant-Man, what's he going to do when Galactus shows up? Well, you don't put Ant-Man against Galactus. <laughs> don't tell that story. That's not realistic. It's the same reason your JV football team doesn't play the New England Patriots. It's like, you know, that's try to keep it within the realms of what your hero can accomplish. So... But I, I think, you know, it's funny because I think we're going to touch on that a little bit in the two books that we're covering today. Uh, I, th- I think yours goes to the psyche of Hank Pym and how he deals with exactly that issue. And mine sets up a situation where you're like, OK, you know what? He's not, not only is he not defeating Galactus, he's not he's not defeating the Gibbon. You know? <laughs> but but we'll you know, we'll, we'll get to those in a few minutes. But let, let's touch on. Uh, you know, when you say, you know, you were an Ant-Man fan before the movie, uh, did you have a strong preference between Hank Pym or Scott Lang? You know what? It, I'm I'm the sort of fan that I – and I, I had to mention this a lot when back when I was doing the Secret Origins podcast um, because DC is rife with legacy heroes. And I usually came down on, on the idea that I am a fan of the most iconic version of the character. So I would say my favorite version of the Flash is the Barry Allen Flash because he was the original one to wear that iconic costume. He was the prototypical Silver Age hero. Now, having said that he's my favorite, I will readily concede the best Flash stories star Wally West. And part of that is just the nature of the, the more sophisticated writing that came out in the 80s and 90s. Um, mm-hmm. I would say the same thing about Robin. I like Tim Drake or even the early Jason Todd when he's wearing the same costume as the classic Robin that, you know, you would watch on the Batman and Robin like television series. I like that look of Robin, but there have been much better Robin stories told with Tim Drake again because of the time period and the sort of sophistication of the writing. So when it comes to Ant-Man for Ant-Man, a lot of it boils down to the costume. It's that look. The first time I saw the character was on a trading card. Um, and I just, I loved the look of the character. I love the costume. I love the helmet in particular. I like the power set of shrinking down, communicating with bugs, getting them to like manipulating them to do stuff. I thought that was really cool. So like at my core, I have to kind of say, yeah, Hank Pym because he was the original. But the thing is, I don't care about Hank Pym that much when he's giant man or when he's Goliath or, even that much when he's Yellow Jacket, although there are better stories when he's Yellow Jacket. So I should say Scott Lang is my favorite because he kind of always stuck in that costume and he stayed true to it. He's also got a really 
compelling origin story with if you get into that with um, t- stealing the costume in order to save his daughter who needed a heart transplant. So I, it's kind of like a, a toss up. I, I would say Hank Pym just because he is the original Ant-Man. But I kind of have to put the caveat that it's just it's Hank Pym limited when he's in that costume. Um, and I have to kind of do some kind of fuzzy head, fuzzy headcanon math in order to say that I like Hank Pym because he's a character that's very easy to not like. Um, so that's a very long and complicated answer for a very simple question of who is it, Hank or Scott? It's Hank with an asterisk. Okay, I, I do agree with your logic, but I would change it for me to say that my the one who I, who I see as the more iconic in my mind is usually whoever I grew up with as the character. Mm-hmm. So I, when I, you know, when I first started reading comics and when I was growing up, Hank Pym was Ant-Man, Barry Allen was the flash, Hal Jordan was green lantern, and I'm just kind of locked in on them. Yeah. So although I liked say, you know, the Kyle Rayner stories when they announced they were bringing Barry, uh, not Barry Allen, uh, Hal Jordan back, that made me happy. Because he was my Green Lantern. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there are. Ex- I'm sure there's exceptions to the rule, but I'm having a tough time coming up with any off the top of my head. But the thing for me, I I totally agree with what you're saying, and I understand that. And for me, I think part of it is because my introduction to some of these characters wasn't in comics. Like for me, a lot of those DC characters, my introduction to them was cartoons or toys or merchandise. You know, I was like 10 years old before I started reading any of these comics. Um, whereas like in the eighties, you know, I might have seen the Super Friends or Super Powers TV show or something like that and group. So I knew what Flash and Green Lantern looked like. And then by the time I think the first Green Lantern comic I actually read was, uh, the end of Emerald Twilight when Hal goes crazy and turns into parallax. And a few issues later we get Hal, we get Kyle Rayner. So Kyle would have been my Green Lantern if I had stuck with that series, but I kind of rejected him because I was like, that doesn't look like the Green Lantern that I remember from the cartoon. So. Yeah, and I'm sure to a lot of people, uh, John Stewart is their Green Lantern because yeah, they know sure. him from Justice League, the Justice League cartoon. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Which I, I, and that, that has had an effect because I know when the Green Lantern movie came out with Ryan Reynolds as Hal Jordan, I know people who said, I thought Green Lantern was black. Because that was the one that they grew up with. That was the cartoon one. Yeah, exactly. But that's, and you know, I think that's who you relate to as the characters, whoever, you know, whoever your initial impression was for the most part. Now, Mm -hmm. that's not to say that you can't uh, adopt or take on another, you know, another version of, especially like you say, with the legacy characters. Uh, You know, I I became very enamored with Jay Garrick as the Flash, but he wasn't the flash for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I, you know, yeah. I, I, I used to love those, you know, the, the crisis on whatever earth crossovers that they would do once a year. Right. Right. And, and yeah, looking, like... looking back on them, a lot of them were terrible, but that's besides the point. Right. Right. And you know, all of this is to say, you know, it's not like a, a Coke or Pepsi, you know, like Nike or Adidas, like rivalry or something like that, where it's like, you know, I will take, you know, the Barry Allen flash, but I will die and go to hell before I read a Wally West comic. No, of course not. That's ridiculous. <laughs> well, but, you know, as silly as that is, you mm-hmm. do see it sometimes. 
you well, see you yeah. see the you know the 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 Marvel zombies against the you know the DC people and it's like it's like they root for the other company to fail because somehow then their characters win. I I, I don't really understand you know the if I think even if you talk to people who feel that way, like when you break it down they'd be like yeah it's kind of dumb, uh, <laughs> but I do think I do think there's an emotional level where they start to kind of feel that way. Uh, and I, I think I see it with you know the Marvel and the DC movies. It's like you know the fans of the Marvel Cinematic Universe seem to revel in the failure of the DC cinematic movies, and it's like, why would you do that? Wouldn't wouldn't you be? And you know, sometimes the answer I get is because I don't like the way they're portraying these characters, so I want to see the movies fail. And and I my my response to that is well, rather than root for the movies to fail. Why don't you root for the movies to be entertaining and to show the characters the way you like them? <laughs> you know, wouldn't that make more sense? And, but you know what? I will admit to being guilty of that type of thinking because I was talking to somebody who after Justice League came out, and I haven't even seen Justice League yet. I had no real desire to see it. Somebody was telling me that they liked the movie because they felt like it was a course correction for the, these DC movies. And at the time, I was kind of of the opinion, I was like, I don't really want them to correct course. I want the ship to sink with all hands on deck and, <laughs> and get like a full reboot. Now, now I, I don't care as much. It, it, it doesn't bother me whether they, they change it, they completely reboot it, or they just find the direction. I'm, I'm fine either way. But Well, as, as, as I get older, mm-hmm. uh, I find that I don't want to wait for reboots. Yeah, I can understand you know, that. I'm not getting any younger. Right. I don't want. I don't want it to. I don't want it to be okay. Now DC has failed in the the efforts to create the DC cinematic universe. So they're going to put this on the shelf, and 10, 15 years from now, after the bad taste is gone, they're going to start it over again. I, I don't want to wait until I'm seventy years old to see these movies. I want a great Fantastic Four movie in my lifetime, and I honestly don't care what studio produces it. Exactly. I mean, I hated the last Fantastic Four movie, and the two before that, uh, I was. You know, I thought they were okay. Yeah, my my biggest problem with the Tim Story ones was Doctor Doom more than anything else. Mm-hmm. Even even more than the Cloud of Galactus. I, <laughs> I just I really really didn't like the portrayal. It didn't seem true to the character at all. Yeah. Uh, so that bothered me. But it, I I did think they were superior to the uh, to the uh, the one that came the Fantastic Four. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I just I thought it was awful, and I know a lot of people said, "Oh no, there was a good movie in there, and uh, you just needed to, uh, you know, you, you just needed to watch the first two acts and then kind of turn it off at the third act because that's when the studio took over." I, I thought the first two acts were awful. Did you actually did you see <laughs> that one? I didn't see it. I remember hearing like the way the the writers and the director Josh Trank were talking about it and the elements of like body horror and, and dysfunction that they wanted to incorporate. And I remember at the time thinking, I was like, you guys should really be making a Doom Patrol movie, not Fantastic Four. It would have been better as a Doom Patrol. Yeah. Uh, it, I actually, you know, if they had taken that, the style of movie they wanted to make, I never even considered that until you just said it, and it's got my mind racing all of a sudden. That <laughs> if, you, if they had taken the style that they were trying to make and adapted it to a Doom Patrol story, they might have had something. Yeah, yeah. But uh, as a Fantastic Four movie, you know, to me, the, the, the first element of Fantastic Four is they're a family. And, it, yeah. and if you miss out on that in your portrayal, then, you know, don't even bother with me after that. Right. And it, what kind of breaks my heart is that the failures of the Fantastic Four will 
will sort of convince the powers that be that it is a it is a kind of it's a self-fulfilling prophecy that they they will always kind of see it as a, a franchise that doesn't have the same fan base that doesn't deserve the same level of care and attention that X-Men or Avengers do um because in my fantasy world if I could like I would I would want them to treat Fantastic Four the way James Cameron kind of treats Avatar where he basically looked at this idea in his head and said the technology for me to make this movie doesn't exist yet so I have to invent new technology in order to make this movie like I would like them to have that level of commitment to doing a new Fantastic Four movie to really show something that has never been imagined before on screen um, I'm just worried that whoever gets it is going to think they're going to try and be conservative about it just because they think it's it's it might be a lost leader or something I don't know well, I, I think there's three elements they need to make a good Fantastic Four movie mm-hmm. the, the first is you got to have a good script and they really yeah. haven't none of the three that they've made have had a top, really top flight script second you got to cast it really well now I, I thought the Tim Story ones were not cast badly except for I well I didn't care for this casting of Stu Storm I didn't care for the casting of uh Doctor Doom but the other three members I didn't think were bad uh, I know yeah, a lot, a lot of people weren't happy with uh, Ewan Grofeld, if I'm mm-hmm. saying his name right. I think I am. Uh, but I, I thought he really looked the part. Yeah, I just remember, there, uh, and it's it's been forever since I've seen it. I, I remember they're just feeling like the writers didn't know how to write a Reed Richards, a compelling Reed Richards. Um, like maybe they were a little bit nervous about writing somebody that smart that it would turn off the audience. So there just wasn't that much there. No, um, but, I, but yeah, that's, I see, to me, that he yeah. almost writes himself because mm-hmm. now you have to come up with the clever ideas that he's doing, and that's the difficult part because he's more mm-hmm. intelligent than the person who's writing him. Right. But yeah. but to to write him from a character point of view where his mind is racing so fast that he's not in the moment, mm-hmm. which I think is is really the way Reed Richards yeah. is. Uh, unfortunately, I think Doctor Strange stole, stole my like perfect fan cast because I would have had Benedict Cumberbatch as Reed Richards, Rachel McAdams as Sue, and um, uh, Hannibal. Why can't I think Mads Mikkelsen playing Doctor Doom? I would have had those three as the main cast, and that that would not have been bad at all. I don't <laughs> think. Uh, you know, it's it's and it's amazing to see what Chris Evans has become from oh, the yeah. Torch. Yeah, it, 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 it really does feel like two totally different actors. And I guess yeah. that's a true tribute to his acting ability. Right. I, yeah. I remember when they first announced that cast, I'm like, he is going to have to stand in a room with Samuel L. Jackson and Robert Downey Jr. And he is going to have to command the attention and he's just going to get swallowed up. Nobody's going to be paying attention to this Captain America. And I am so glad that I was wrong. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was like, because he has done amazingly with that with that role, he is so good. So well, he's he's done so well with that role that you no longer think uh, that Robert Downey Jr. as as Tony Stark is the best casting that Marvel has ever done. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah. and that's saying a lot because he you know he took over that role and owns it. it. Right to, to the point that they write the character in the comics like Robert Downey Jr. now. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So. I think we could go on and on, and I know we could go on and on, but we got two books to cover. Yeah. So, uh, as the guest, apologies, apologies in advance to the fans of Back to the Bins. 
I can't do a Arnold Schwarzenegger impression for crap, so you're really missing out on Dr. Bill's presence in this episode. <laughs> uh, you know what, Dr. Bill, every once in a while makes an appearance by way of his uh, LMD. Hey, everybody, what's up? Dr. Bill in the house. <laughs> I always give the guests the, op- op- the option of whether you want to go first or second. That's become my uh, my way of doing it. So what's your call on this one? Uh, even though my book is more recent chronologically, um, let's do mine first. That's fine. So, okay. Uh, and the uh, the book that I picked is Age of Ultron, Issue 10 AI. Now, make that note that you're not looking for the 10th and final chapter of Age of Ultron. This was a special tie-in spinoff called AI uh, that was leading into a series called, I think, Avengers AI that came out after it. Uh, and, and for what it's worth, when you told me which one to read, I read Avengers, uh, Age of Ultron number 10. And then, and then when I read it, I was like, this, this doesn't sound anything like what Ryan is describing this. <laughs> and then I saw, oh, wait a minute, AI, okay. And I found it, and I, I, I had to make my course correction. Nice. Uh, anyway, um, actually, shoot, I, did, I forgot to write down the creator credits for this issue. Uh, let me see if... I think they're on the first page here. It's written by Mark Wade. Yeah. Art is by Andre Lima Arajo. Arujo, I think. Arujo, okay. The color artist is Frank Diarmada. Uh, letterer is VCs Clayton Cowles. Cover is by Sarah Pacelli and Marte Garcia. And then there's a variant cover by Paulo Rivera. And I think everybody else we don't need to mention. Right, right. So, uh, Okay. So do you want me to just go into the synopsis? Sure. So, all right, well, all right, so I'll get back into this. So, yeah, this issue, Age of Ultron, number 10 AI, is written by Mark Wade with art by Andre Arujo and the cover by Sarah Pacelli. Uh, the story, Hank Pym may have finally lost his mind for good. After witnessing two alternative realities, one in which his creation, Ultron, wiped out the human race, and another where Hank died before creating Ultron, and guess what, the world still went to crap, Hank shrinks down to wallow in his own misery. Cue the extended flashback showing Hank's life story. Henry Christopher Pym grew up in a small Nebraska town, and by age three he was already smarter than his mother and father combined. Raising a child genius was challenging for Ma and Pa Pym, who hoped Hank's intellect would lead to practical scientific endeavors, like medicine or engineering. But Hank's brilliance manifested in more creative inventions, such as a typewriter that types in different colors, a car horn with adjustable pitches and tones, and a machine that scoops the cream filling out of Oreo cookies. The only person who nurtured Hank's creative impulses was his paternal grandmother, a science fiction writer. But when Grandma Pym died, the creative light went out of Hank for a while. He breezed through school and landed a cushy job with an engineering group. But boredom and frustration finally got the better of him, and he quit his job after lashing out violently at his boss. Hank went home and, still angry, decided to test his latest invention on himself. It was a serum that shrank him to the size of an insect. He barely escaped from a proportionately giant ant with his life. After resizing to normal, he felt a rush like never before. This, of course, led to his adventuring career as Ant-Man. But after the first mission with the Avengers, he felt too small and inadequate. In front of his girlfriend, the Wasp, no less. So he changed his costumed identity to Giant-Man. 
and later to Goliath, and later to Yellowjacket. None of those costumes compared, however, to the creation of Ultron and the devastation it would cause. But, after sitting alone for days, thinking his life a waste, he realized that the reality where the world went to hell didn't prove his insignificance. It may very well have gone to crap because Hank was not there to be Ant-Man and Giant-Man and Yellowjacket. This realization reinvigorates Hank. Then he goes out and, using his combined shrinking and growing powers, saves a woman from a kidnapper, stops a group of robbers, and uses enlarged ants to help him rescue the trapped passengers of a derailed train. Now, Hank Pym has a renewed sense of confidence and direction, and the future looks bright for this character. Until he's killed off about a year later. (laughs) (laughs) And that was Age of Ultron AI. So... Uh, the cover, I forgot to mention, well, I almost can't describe the cover without giving away my grade for it. So, uh, did you want to talk about that or did you want to get into the story first? No, let me, let me see if I can describe it without giving away a grade. It shows Hank, uh, close up of his face, head and, head and shoulders shot. He's looking directly at the reader. He's got a soundless scream coming out of him. And it looks like his Ant-Man helmet is breaking up around him. Uh, I can't tell. It just looks, I guess it's just energy crackling behind him. And I don't know, just as far as description, anything more to it than that? So I don't think it's supposed to be his Ant-Man helmet. I think it's supposed to be Ultron. Oh, okay. I think it's like he's, I think it's like he's breaking out of the shell of Ultron. Okay, even better. That's now. I, I'll just say to you know, we'll start by talking about the cover a little bit. I think Sarah Pacelli is a great artist. Yeah, I do too. Uh, I she's, think she's coming up on the new Fantastic Four series, and I'm really looking forward to that. Yeah, I I, I first became acquainted with her when she did the uh, Spider-Man Ultimate Spider-Man crossover, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and I, just just reading that, I, I was very impressed, and I haven't seen anything to to dampen that enthusiasm for her work. So I don't, I don't know if that gives away our grades too much on the cover, but uh, just, just let it be said that I, I really think she's one of the best up and coming artists around. Yeah. Yeah. So. Uh, now, as far as the story goes, I have to say, I really like when they can do a retcon of sorts without having to change history as you know it. Mm-hmm. Where they just kind of shoehorn in the information that you didn't know. Uh, and for the most part, th- that's the case here. Uh, I do, you know, I, I think they, you know, they did a little short shrift on his other identities, but they certainly didn't change the information there. What they don't touch on at all, which is a significant part of his life, is the fact that he was married before Jan. Mm-hmm. You know, they don't mention uh, Maria Pym at all. Right. And, and I think that's kind of a, a slight failure to the storytelling. Uh, because I think it is a significant part of his life, and just to kind of bypass that, I think, is a mistake. That said, I like the fact that, you know, we can have a Hank Pym story that is positive in its outlook, uh, even though it's it's kind of giving you a misdirection of thinking, you know, making you think he's going to go into a deep depression, uh, and then turning it out to be kind of, you know, just reaffirming at the end. Mm-hmm. So I, I liked that aspect of the story. And I have to tell you, I didn't actually read this until when I read it today for today's show. 
So it's, it's for whatever reason, I had not gotten around to this one. And uh, I'm glad you pointed it out for that reason, because I did enjoy reading this. Although, uh, you know, it was kind of a bummer at the end when you mentioned, yeah, that a year from now they're going to kill him. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And and not including the, any reference to uh, his his first wife. Funny, because now she like the new the current wasp in the comics is the daughter from that marriage from his first wife. Um, Nadia Pym is the current wasp, the unstoppable wasp in the comics, then, and, and she's part of. She was recently part of one of the Avengers teams too. Yeah. Now, I don't follow the current continuity very closely. Uh, what is the status quo of Chan? I, you know, she. I think she was gone for a while, but now, I think she's back. I think there are technically two wasps in continuity, but I think. The younger one, the new kind of uh, in, unstoppable wasp that's got her own title. I think she is more at the forefront. Um, but I, I, I've sort of been following some of the ancillary, some of the solo titles, but I haven't actually been reading the core Avengers books in a while. So I don't know Jan's status. I think she's around. And is Hank still dead? I believe so. I think there was a like there was a new Ultron story maybe last year where. He was like integrated. He was trying to convince them that Hank Pym, his consciousness was inside him, and that and that Ultron was benevolent now because Hank had taken him over. But that was just a trap or something. And Janet was like the one person who could see through it and said, "Yeah, no, my the man I loved is dead. This is uh, Ultron trying to trick us or something like that." I think I could be getting that wrong, but I think that was the storyline. Yeah, so. and, you know, going back to the, the talk we were having earlier about the legacy heroes and all, mm-hmm. I, I don't understand like the need to kill off or retire the original heroes in order to give the role to somebody else. Right. I, I mean, I know sometimes for dramatic effect, you know, they right. do that, but you only, you only have so much dramatic effect now anyway, because nobody stays dead forever in the comics. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I, I like, I, I don't understand why you can't have the Barry Allen and Jay Garrick and Wally West flashes all exist at the same time. Right. Right. There's certainly enough supervillains, but yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, they may not have all well, have their own series. Yeah. But but yeah, getting getting to what you were saying about having a retcon that doesn't feel like it's really changing the facts as you know them. It's just sort of adding something new, like giving you a new perspective. That's what I really like about this stuff. The stuff about Hank's childhood, really kind of informing and kind of explaining how you have a character who like invented this helmet lip that let him talk to insects and a, a sort of pim particle, this gas or substance that let him shrink or change size and, and what it could do with costumes. And Oh, by the way, he also created this, you know, advanced artificial intelligence that went psycho. He's got all of these different things going on. It's like, is the character kind of like too schizophrenic in his power sets and everything. And I like that Wade just kind of said, Hank, could have been normal, straightforward, technological engineer like a Tony Stark or a Bruce Banner type, but he always had these crazy sort of flights of fancy, these weird ideas that, yeah, Hank Pym would – he would create a device that lets him talk to ants because that's the type of creative thing that he would think is is fun. And and that's the kind of you know impulse that his grandmother would have nurtured, but that impulse kind of went away for a while during some of his formative years when she died. And then um, it all comes full circle at the end when, you know, when he does his It's a Wonderful Life moment. Right. And, and realizes that the reason in the second existence that the world went to hell was because he wasn't there. Right. 
you know, that's, I, I thought that was just a great moment. That's, that's in, in a movie, that would be a goosebump moment. Yeah. 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 And Mark, we does something really interesting here because I've, I've kind of thought, and, and a lot of people I know talk to, they, they think the best version of Hank Pym isn't Ant-Man or Yellow Jacket or Giant Man. They think it is the sort of Professor Pym from the West Coast Avengers era. Uh, that, that is sort of like the Hank Pym that a lot of people that I know really prefer. And I kind of think of him like, yeah, maybe he's just so – maybe he would be better off as kind of a scientific adventurer but not necessarily a crime fighter or a superhero. Leave the Ant-Man legacy to Scott Lang. Leave the Giant Man legacy to Bill Foster, Black Goliath, something like that, um, and kind of like play along those lines. But – Mark Wade does something different. He, the first two thirds of this comic are this extended flashback explaining Hank Pym's origin and his history. And then the last third of the story is basically three mini adventures with this character of like how you can do it. It's, it's like he's giving a blueprint for future writers. This is how you tell a Hank Pym as a superhero story. Oh, there's a woman being like carjacked or kidnapped. She's got a gun to her head. Ant-Man swoops down over the car he drops on the trunk and just changes size so quickly that he just crushes the back of the car, stops the kidnapper, saves the woman. And then but, but next you, you might want to say how he stops the kidnapper. He he, he shrinks down and yeah. punches his brain. Yeah, he goes in the guy's ear, punches the you just see it looks like the guy's having a grand mal seizure because he's getting hit in the brain and and Hank jumps out of his nose as the the guy's like drooling like a vegetable. That's pretty intense. No, I, I gotta and, think just to just go to the science of that, I gotta think that that would have the same effect as a stroke. But okay, whatever. Very but yeah, very well. and of course he's probably thinking, you know, uh, this guy he works for the hood gang you know he's probably thinking not not a total loss to society um and then cut to we got these guys like coming out of a store they ski masks and bags full of money they're looting they're going to a helicopter giant man is sitting there waiting for them they fire machine guns at him and it looks like he just kind of twitches his fingers and uses the pin particles to shrink the bullets coming at him so small that they have no effect on him they don't hurt him and then he just like you know blows them away and then the last thing is he, he sprinkles the pin particles on some ants so that they grow huge and he's able to, you know, save people from a train collapse, from a bridge collapse. And it's, it's like three little mini Hank Pym adventures right there. So it's like any, anybody who wants to pick up the reins from this story wants to write the character, this is the way you can do it. I think Mark, Mark Wade is, is an expert at that. I mean, he, yeah. he, did, he did it most recently with Daredevil. Mm-hmm. Uh, where you know he took the character that everybody had made so down and morose, and just said, "Okay, you know what? Let's stop this." Yeah. <laughs> and and he just he he wrote a lighthearted story and you know storyline, and just let you know showed showed people, okay, you know you don't have to pretend that you're Frank Miller to to write a Daredevil anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And and you know and I think I think the same on a different level can be said for the Hank Pym character because everybody got so wrapped up in the Hank Pym wife beater yeah. aspect of things that either, either they, they showed him as a total ass or they tried to just make the whole story apologizing for it and talking about how he's, you know, schizophrenic because of the, uh, the Pym particles. Now it's mm-hmm. like, you know, let's, why don't we leave that behind us now? It was one story that 
you know, it was an interesting story, but it shouldn't be the defining story for the character. I know, but it was for the long, that, I mean, that's the problem. It, it was because so many writers had, they felt like they had to apologize for it or they had to explain it. And because of the nature of their relationships, you think of Ant-Man and the Wasp as a couple and they're always kind of tied to each other. It was like Janet could never get away from him for that long they, they kept on coming back to each other for for some reason so it kind of like they always had to explain why they were with so yeah no i remember for, for the longest time thinking that the maybe the best thing for hank pym at that point was that maybe he should have gone full villain and that could have been part of his legacy of like the original sin of the avengers was that one of their founding members ended up being their enemy like if he just went crazy and 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 that they took it that far or if they had Build them off, you know, in 1981 or 82, you know, something like that. But no, I, I think, I think what Mark Wade does definitely well very here is like, no, he doesn't have to be plagued by that history. That doesn't have to be the defining thing. You can get back to the roots of the character before Jim Shooter did that to him. Yeah, I, I agree. I think, you know, there's, there's, there's no reason that you have to fixate on that at this point. But I do, I do think, you know, this, uh, I, I, apologize if this bothers anybody <laughs> but uh i do think there's an element of political correctness in all of this where people feel like well if i don't address that somehow i'm a misogynist mm-hmm. and and I, I don't think that's the reality of it but i think that's the fear right that may be true so uh, you know I, I know people get sensitive about such subjects so i don't want to go too yeah. deeply into it and Potentially, I, my, my goal is never to offend my listeners. Yeah. So I don't want to. I don't want to linger on that topic for too too long. Yeah. Well, I used to spend every other episode of Secret Origins podcast like, railing against Roy Thomas, so I'm used to offending my listeners. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. Uh, I, I'm not gonna, not, you know what? We're gonna <laughs> go right by that. We're not going to debate Roy Thomas today. Okay. Uh, I, 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 you know, I, I think I could give you pluses and minuses, and you might make points that I'd agree with, mm. and I'd still ultimately yeah. fall down on being <laughs> a fan of a lot of his work. I am a fan of a ton of his Marvel work, and I'll say that. <laughs> okay, I, I so. think I think I, I, I think I know where you're going. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> um, I, I just, I'm trying to think about this. I, I liked the grandmother story aspect of this story. I mm. thought that was pretty well done. It's, you know, I know more than just a few people who have had a very significant person in their lives that wasn't just a parent, Mm -hmm. sometimes a grandmother, sometimes a grandfather, sometimes an aunt, an uncle, sibling, whatever. Uh, And there's too many stories that go to father issues and they start hitting on the... uh, you know, everything, everything, everything comes from your parents mistreating you. Now, right. in this instance, uh, you know, he didn't go there. He he did kind of hit on that his parents didn't know how to deal with his genius. Right. I don't think that was necessarily unrealistic. You know, if if the average person had a child like that, as as precocious and intelligent as that, you know, as as they said in the storyline, uh smarter than both of his parents combined, mm-hmm. you know, that's not an easy thing. Yeah. You know, we, we all, we all wish for our children to be more intelligent than us and do better than us. But 
so, you know, sometimes that could be more of a curse than a blessing. Yeah, and I, that was that was my fear actually. Like when in like the first page of the flashback, when he's like, "Yeah, I grew up in in nowhere, Nebraska, smarter than my parents." By the time I was three years old, I was like, "Oh God, is this going to be a story about you know the you know dumb hicks from you know nowhere in the Midwest?" who don't relate to their kids so they put him down and they you know stifle his creative genius and they're all is there going to be like a lot of sort of like jealousy like his father feels inferior to him and like lashes out to him it's like no we don't get that yeah no and that was the fear and i think a lesser writer may have succumbed to that type of stereotypical sort of situation of just but markway doesn't do that and it's it's more about you know you get glimpses where yeah it is these people i do not understand how to foster their child's genius but they also don't stand in his way so that's yeah so i i think that is good the way he handles it and he uses the grandmother to kind of sidestep that by letting her be the one to really embrace it i love i do like the panel it's when uh his dad is working on the car like the, he's got the hood open and he's like no hank i don't need a gizmo that will let me pick the sound of my horn yeah. Well, and, no, but I, I think what he says beyond that is even better. <laughs> Couldn't you just build me a new carburetor? Yeah. <laughs> and I think that's, you know, yeah. what, what yeah. I think it's kind of realistic. And, you know, like I was saying about the, you know, not necessarily knowing how to deal with the child. But I also think the parents are trying to guide him in the way that they know. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they know the element of life where, you know, you get. I don't want to use the word mundane, but you get an average job and you have a boss and you follow the rules and you go along and that's how you succeed in life. Job and, security and taking care of your family. That's sort of yeah. most important. And if, and if you want to be an artist, you're going to starve. That is kind of the, that is kind of the presumption. And that's, that is a truism, which it's a stereotype or it's a cliche, but it's a cliche for a reason. I've seen that. Yeah, I agree. And it's, you know, it's, it's his parents trying to do the best they can to be parents. It's not his parents being miserable failures. Right. Right. Just not having the necessary imagination and nerve right. to foster his, you know, his, his uh, genius. Right. So I, I think that's all really well handled by Wade. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess the reason I picked this one is I think it's a really good, really simple character study of Hank Pym, who is a complicated character and one that I said, if you look at his long history, can be a difficult character to like and can be a e- character who is easily dismissed. Um, but I think this is provides some really interesting insight into his creative genius and and offers some avenues of what you could do to keep him as a sort of conventional crime-fighting superhero uh, and not just relegate him to the lab assistant of your adventure team. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I agree. Uh, I'm trying to think if there's any other more, any other points in this to, to touch on. Uh, the artwork, I mean, I, I hit on, you know, what I think pretty much of the cover. The interior artwork is a little bit more you know i i feel like i i'm so inconsistent in what i tell people i like because i talk about how i don't like the very very thick lines i almost feel like this is a little too thin lined for me i kind of had the same thought and i don't know if it's like a lack of inking or if it's a lack of shadowing i think maybe yeah yeah now uh just uh 
Did you? You didn't read the AI series, I guess, did you? I didn't. I never followed up with this one. Because no. I'm curious. There's an epilogue in the story for anybody listening along, where yeah. there's a robotic head, and it's saying, you know, free me. And Hank says, hang on, just a minute. Just was it? You're just about to be my greatest invention yet. Just hang on. And he takes the robot head and he puts a green cloth over it almost to create a Dr. Doom kind of looking thing. It looks like a Doom bot head. Yeah. I, I, think that I'm, I think that's what it's supposed to be, but I don't know for sure. And it says this is going to show them that Hank Pym means business. Mm-hmm. And this is to be continued in Avengers AI number one, uh, which I have not read. Uh, I'm going to speculate that this is him trying to re redo his ultra his ultron experiments with artificial intelligence and try and get it right this time but I don't i'm know. sure that'll be fine <laughs> <laughs> yeah, nothing could possibly go wrong <laughs> right <laughs> but i mean it that's that's what i would speculate or where i would speculate it's going based on you know that one page teaser that they give us i don't know if that is actually the case but that's what it looks like to me. Did you have any any different thought about that? No, that was that was my assumption. Is that it sort of it, it kind of looked like okay, maybe he can't break away from the cycle as much. Like it, this whole this whole thing seems to be the, him like getting like this new lease on life and this new perspective. But maybe on the last page, and this almost felt like maybe it wasn't. I, I assume that Mark Wade wrote it or they wouldn't have given it somebody else credit for it, but it, it kind of just looked like, nope, he's not able to break the cycle. He does kind of slip back into that. But without without following the series, I really I don't have more context than that. I'm not sure where it would have gone. But yeah, Well, me neither. But uh, yeah. it, it, it does make me curious to read it. I don't – I'm hoping that they're not going to be doing that he just fails again. Uh, mm-hmm. In the same way, and creates a new great enemy for himself, because uh, that's that's not really the story I want to read. But I'm I'm hoping that they're more clever than that, and that there is a good story in there that that I will enjoy reading. I, 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 and for that reason, I'm not sure. Like I think I want to follow up on it, but I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah, and I think I mean I think the AI series went for twelve issues. And I don't know if it ended because of lack of sales or if it ended because I think right around then they released the graphic novel, The Rage of Ultron. And I think that's where he, where the character is killed. So. Okay. Yeah. I did. You know what? I did read that one. Uh, yeah. yeah. It was, it was interesting the way it ended out. I, I, it's been a little while since I read it, but I do remember that ending that way. And I just kind of thought, this isn't real. He's not really dead or whatever, but I, I guess, I guess he is for now. For now. <laughs> so. right, you want to you want to rate this? Sure. Um, going back to the cover, and uh, we we did describe it. And again, everything that we said about Sarah Pacelli, I completely co-sign. I think she's phenomenal, and I think this is a very striking image. Uh, this looks great. It's full of emotion, and I think this would be great as a splash page. But there's one little thing about it that I feel like I, I can't quite give it an A for this cover. And it's, it's the fact of just the, what the subject matter is that if you didn't know that this was about Hank Pym, I don't know if this cover 
would tell you that it is. And I think part of it is just, and this is just a, a fault, a fault of the character, but like the costume, the giant man costume isn't super recognizable on its own. And if you just look at the head of giant man, it's even less so. And especially if you can't see the antenna, it's really just kind of like a mat, like a cowl mask around the, that kind of circles the eyes. But like if, if the mask was painted blue instead of red, would you think it's captain America? If it was purple instead of red, would you think it's Hawkeye? Like, I, I don't look at this image and think that's Hank Pym, that's Giant Man, except that I already know what the story is. And conversely, that, like, the, the suit that he's, the shell that he's breaking out of it, like, I think is supposed to be Ultron, but we don't see the most recognizable things about Ultron, which is, like, the mouth and the eyes and the face. And it's also, the suit is colored, or the, the armor is colored gold. Now that makes sense for the age of Ultron's story because Ultron was gold in that story. But in 99% of other Ultron tales, he's silver. So if you take away the title and you don't already know what this comic is about, I don't think this comic tells you, or I don't think this cover tells you who you're looking at or what the significance is. And it's a really great image, but I think just because of those reasons, I feel like I I, I don't want to give this a higher than a B plus. Now it's like the highest B plus possible, but it, it's just weird. Like I think that when I look at the cover, I should get a sense of who I'm going to be reading about. And if I didn't already know, I don't think this cover does that. Does that make sense? It makes so much sense that I'm changing my grade. <laughs> and I, I mean, I totally agree with everything you just said. Um, I, I tend to give a little bit of a pass to modern comics on the covers because I've criticized them till I'm blue in the face about not having a, a, a cover representative of the story that we're going to get. Mm-hmm. And I've gotten so tired of criticizing it that now <laughs> I just kind of let it go. Uh but, you know, when, as you pointed out, I agree totally. It, it is with, without reading the story, there's no clear delineation as to who we see on the cover, really. Uh, and your point about the Ultron thing, I think, is borne out by the fact that I didn't even realize that was Ultron until you said it to me. So I, I think that's, you know, that's a factor as well. Uh, so I'm, I'm going to say... I'm going to agree with you on a B plus because I think the artwork is really, really well done. But conceptually, I think the cover could have been better. Yeah. If this was a splash page inside the comic, holy crap, that's it's beautiful. Yeah, because if it was a splash page, then right. you could add, you know, one paragraph of, of uh, you know, not, or either dialogue or you know, a, a text box right. where you kind of explain what's going on. Yeah. You know, the same, the same text that you got at the beginning of the story talking about, you know, Hank, uh, you know, going through this twice and all of that stuff would be very effective with that, co- with that artwork. Yeah. And maybe, I mean, like maybe there are other factors too that might have changed it. If this wasn't Age of Ultron AI, you know, spinoff number 10, like, like, like a sub thing from this event. If this was, you know, 
like Astonishing Ant-Man issue four or, you know, new, the new, you know, the new Giant Man Adventures issue 16 or something. And this was that cover. If it had that title plastered across, I probably wouldn't think twice because I would know who I'm looking at. So maybe it's just the fact of the fault of the title not telling me. And that's that's it's it's hard to judge it. But I, I, I kind of just have to. I, I mean, that does inform what I'm looking at. I wonder if there's also just an element of the Marvel people thinking, well, we, we've already had 10 issues of <laughs> yeah. of Age of Ultron. So if you've bought the 10 issues, you're going to buy this one anyway. Right. right. So let, let's let Sarah Pacelli just have fun drawing whatever she wants to draw. Yeah. Uh, as for the other grades, getting into it, uh, the story, I give an A. Um, I, I think Mark Wade is not infallible, but I think for my money, he has to go out of his way not to deliver an A caliber story. Um, and the art, I, I mean, there's nothing wrong with it. There's nothing that I kind of leaps out, but it doesn't, I want to say an A minus for the art. I mean, it's, it's clean. Everything is easy to follow. Um, there aren't a whole lot of really like standout knock your socks off panels. Um, but it's, it's clean it's efficient it's well done so i i think i'm gonna go a minus for the art maybe that's higher than it should but i don't know what do you think uh i agree with you on the story i think mark wade is one of the modern masters yeah. uh i don't want to be too hyperbolized on it but i i think he's you know almost everything i've ever read by him i've really enjoyed so i'm i'm, I'm not gonna start uh, blasting him now uh and, and I thought it was a pretty compelling story. It was a quick read. It was easy to follow what was going on. And I thought it hit on a lot of psychological notes that we've talked about here that are just really interesting and, you know, well well put together. So I, I have no problem with an A for the story. The interior artwork, however, while I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with it, I don't think you get high grades for not being inherently wrong. I think you get high grades for doing things that are above and beyond. Uh, mm-hmm. I think it is clean, it is easy to follow, and it's well-paced. Those are the positives I can give you. The negatives are there's nothing about it that I feel is especially dynamic, and there's nothing where I point to it and say, look at that panel, that's beautiful. Yeah. Uh, so for that reason, I'm going to say overall, I, th- I think it's it's better than average, and I'm going to say a B. I, would, I agree with that, and I would probably knock it down to a B plus. Um, so yeah, I, I would give, I would give the interior art and the cover both B pluses, but for very, very different reasons. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. So, and so I, right. I, overall, just, you know, all things together, I give the book a B plus. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. All right. So that's our more recent book. Now I bro- I went back a little bit and what I ended up doing was I picked the first Ant-Man story that I purchased as a collector. Uh, it was before I started buying books, so it was the first one I bought out of the back issue bins. Mm. So I have a copy of this issue with the, with a uh, black marker 25 written on the Comics Code Authority, because <laughs> that's that's how the owner of the comic store I used to go to would mark his back issues wow. to let you know how much you had to pay for them. Uh, it's Marvel feature number nine from May of 1973, so it didn't come out too long before I started collecting, but... It is still before. Uh, it's got a cover by John Romita, and it shows uh, the wasp at the foreground laying on the ground, uh, unconscious. 
Uh, Ant-Man is between her and a cat who's got its claws, its paw extended with the claws out, ready to swipe down. He's holding a big nail and kind of fighting off the, uh, the critter. Uh, and it's by John Romita. So my thought is how bad could it be? Uh, <laughs> it's got the, the balloon. It says my wife, the killer. And in, uh, Hank is thinking Jan's hurt bad, but I won't leave her to die. Either we both walk out of here or neither of us does. So, you know, we, we talked about him being uh, possibly ineffective as a uh, hero. Uh, here he's being tested by a cat. So, <laughs> so I think that, that speaks some volumes. Uh, the story is written by Mike Friedrich, uh, inked by uh, Craig Russell, uh, inked by Frank, I, I guess it's Bollet, uh, lettered by John Costanza and colored by Ben Hunt. And to... Uh, Synopsize, before this issue, uh, there was a storyline where Hank gets, first of all, stuck at the miniature size, and Jan gets some sort of a mutation where she starts to become a near-mindless, almost real wasp. She gets a giant uh, butt stinger and uh, two little arms that are coming out below, you know, but but insect arms that are coming out below her uh, regular arms and she's pretty much just going on instinct alone and her instinct is to kill so she's coming after hank he's trying to run away from her he uses a popsicle stick to uh, as as a springboard to kind of jump away uh but as as he's escaping her he's confronted by a rat which at his Insect size is like a giant monster to him. Uh, it's it's coming at him, but as it does, all of a sudden it just stiffens and drops to the ground. And that's because while he was combating with the rat, the wasp came up and stung it from behind. And she starts speaking in some rudimentary language, which surprises him because up to this point she has just been a mindless killer. Uh, he engages her but then swings away he sees his ant-man helmet on the ground so he goes to get it but as he's reaching for it she stings him uh fortunately i guess it doesn't totally uh, incapacitate him he grabs the helmet he puts it on he calls his soldier ants to help him uh she fights them off fairly easily because these are superheroes so they can beat ants um and (laughs) As, as she's come, you know, she starts to, he lets, he calls them off rather than have them all get killed. Uh, but then, uh, she, she gets him pretty much trapped. And then we cut to Hank's lab where Bill Foster, who will one day be Black Goliath and then just Goliath, uh, and then Giant Man, uh, is in the lab and he's being, uh, confronted by some people who are trying to declare Hank and Jan dead and take over the property. Uh, dude's got like these little tiny little glasses on that just look so annoying like you want to smack them. But Bill is uh, you know, defending them saying that they're not dead. We get a thought balloon from the chauffeur who happens to also be whirlwind about how he, he had a hand in their disappearance. Uh, Iron Man comes at Bill Forster's request but he's pretty much ready to declare them dead as well he uses some sort of scanner that doesn't find them and he feels like that confirms that they are gone the uh, lab, lab had been on fire and they just assumed that the bodies had been consumed by the flames 
cut back to Hank and Jan where he's got his helmet on now and he uses that to somehow uh, influence Jan and calm her down and apparently it seems like her changing into the wasp is almost Hulk-like that when she's upset she turns into the wa- into this wasp but then when she calms down she goes back to her usual self which includes the giant butt stinger disappearing and her outfit growing back to cover her ass uh, which is just like plain out weird but uh, whatever uh, so they, there's a flashback to how they got to this point and they decide to go to a uh, nearby trailer that they see to seek help as they're going, they get confronted by a cat, so we get a recreation of the scene from the cover. Uh, the cat swipes at Jen and knocks her out, so she's laying down. Hank is ready to defend her, but he gets swiped by the cat as well. And as things are getting a little nasty, somebody comes out and grabs the cat and says, Why, I'd be delighted to help you. And then we get a, a full-page splash of somebody who calls himself Dr. Nemesis with pretty weird looking super villain outfit on and he puts out his hand and says uh what is it ant-man of the wasp i believe how fortunate you haven't died yet in fact you'll fit perfectly into my plans soon the world will feel the heel of dr nemesis and hank is thinking oh brother but for reasons i don't understand it looks like he's actually walking over to go in the hand of dr nemesis to be picked up instead of coming up with some sort of defensive scheme here and it's to be continued in the next issue. So, there is an element of nostalgia to this for me, because as I said, this was the first Ant-Man book I picked up, uh, and I kind of just, despite myself, enjoyed the whole storyline from Marvel feature that went on, mm-hmm. but when I sit here and read it and try and be critical of it, <laughs> there's, there's an awful lot to criticize. Uh the artist by Craig Russell, who, if I, if I'm, if my memory is correct, he was famous for more like sword and sorcery stuff, like Elric and things like that. Mm-hmm. I think I think you're right. Yeah. Uh, but I think this may predate his work on that. I think this may be very early in his career. Uh, again, it's a, it's a pretty clean style. It's a little different from what you generally would see in Marvel comics of that day. It's not quite the house style. But it's, you know, it's fairly well, the storytelling is well laid out. Um, The action sequences are fairly easy to follow. Uh, Again, much like the the issue before, I I just think that there's not a lot of panels where I think, oh, that one is outstanding. There's a few that I like, uh, you know, when, when Hank is down and the wasp is standing over him i think that's a pretty cool panel she looks maniacal in it and he looks pretty desperate uh the scene when the ants are all surrounding her i thought is pretty cool uh that almost has a cinematic feel to it to me uh so i I think there's moments where the art shines and there's moments where it just kind of seems kind of there Mm -hmm. um the story is I mean, the story is silly. He's fighting. Uh, <laughs> he's, he's fighting a rat. He's fighting a cat. You know, this, this isn't the escapism that you normally expect. This is more. This is more science fictiony than superheroy. Yeah. Yeah, it's. So I like the story. I enjoyed it too, but I couldn't help like as I was reading this, I, I kept thinking, and it's sort of like you alluded to it. I was like, this doesn't seem like a Marvel comic from the early seventies. 
I was like, this really seems like a a Silver Age DC Adam story, or even aspects of like the the Golden Age Doll Man. Like, if we're looking at like shrinking heroes, mm-hmm. um, and maybe it's because he's like Hank is not in his convention. Like when he came back for this Marvel feature series, he's not in his old school Ant Man costume. We actually he doesn't wear the helmet for a good portion of this. He's got like a red sort of jacket or top with a white pants with like this, these weird kind of like yellow buttons that run down the side that make it look like almost a kind of like naval officer uniform or a version of that. Mm. And when you combine that with the fact that he's holding a nail as a sword, there's like, he looks kind of like a, a, a buccaneer, like a space, like, like, like a, a pirate or something going on with this. It just doesn't look like a normal superhero. It looks like something else. And, and you mentioned how uh, Russell's art doesn't really look like the uh, the Marvel house style. Yeah, I think the exact opposite. If anything, he like some of his panels, the way he draws faces, really reminds me of Dick Dillon on Justice League of America. Yes, yes, so, I hadn't thought uh, yeah. of that, but that's that's a good uh, yes. call. So I wonder if like that was one of his models, or that was what he was going for. So the whole time I'm reading this, I'm having this weird, like culture shock thing where I'm like, this feels like I'm reading an Adam story from like 1963 or something, not a Marvel ad, uh, Ant-Man and Wasp story from 1973. So there's just a really weird disparity that I'm going through. Um, having said all that, I can appreciate those type of stories. Yes, it is silly, but again, when I say you don't put Ant-Man against Galactus, you have him shrunk down and he's stuck and Fighting a rat or a cat is actually a big deal when you're stuck at that size. Now, that's, you know, that, that doesn't make him, you know, put him on the same footing as a world beater or even somebody like Spider-Man, but you tell different types of stories for different types of characters. That's, that's how you get different readers. So I think there is a, an avenue for this type of storytelling that can be very fun. So yeah, I, I, there were certain, they, I definitely, I got a kick out of this story. I don't think it was great, but I, it was enjoyable for a lot of it. Yeah, I, I think you, you know, you're right on the money with most of it. It's it's interesting how you know the elements that you talk about, the artwork and even the story itself, don't feel like typical Marvel universe. And I wonder if that's why they felt the need to shoehorn Iron Man into it. Just yeah, to kind of, yeah. just to kind of emphasize that it is still part of the Marvel universe. Yeah. Because Iron Man doesn't really have a lot to do with the story. He just comes, exposits, and leaves. But, uh, yeah, I mean, overall, I just thought it was fun. It's uh, And it's it's been a little while since I reread this, but, uh, I, you know, I think the story's leading up to it, if I remember right, and then the story that follows it. And I think there's just one issue that follows it, and then we go to the uh, – uh, this became the tryout book for Marvel Two and One with two yeah, issues. Yeah, yeah, because it thing. was yeah, the thing took over as as a team up book. Yeah, I think that was um, issues eleven, twelve. So I think you know, we, like I said, one more. I think all of these issues were collected in the uh, essential Astonishing Ant Man because I, I I know I've read these before, and I I think that's probably where I read them. Um. And I will say, I wish we had actually seen him in costume because the uh, the chauffeur who's actually Whirlwind, um, I, I will say he is like one of my favorite kind of Mort villains in Marvel <laughs> is is the Whirlwind. Um, I, I've liked him ever since 
God, of all things, and again, this I mentioned at the beginning of the episode how so much of my love for these characters was from cartoons or merchandise or other things. My love for Whirlwind comes from the arcade game Captain America and the Avengers. <laughs> Whirlwind was one of the villains that you fought, and I liked him in that. I don't think I ever played that one. I think that one is after my uh, arcade time. Yeah, it used to be outside of the Walmart when I was growing or was it Kmart? It was a Walmart or Kmart when I was growing up. Some sort of and, uh, mart. Yeah, some mart. Um, and yeah, that's that's and yeah, you could be Captain America, Iron Man, Hawkeye, or the all white version of the Vision. So. Yeah, okay, yeah so it definitely is after my arcade days. <laughs> the all white Vision didn't even exist in my arcade time. Right. <laughs> uh, just you know, talking about the art a little bit, uh, I think. Craig Russell does a pretty good job. If you, again, if you're not looking for house style, but I think he's a little weak on animals. I think his his rat looks a little weird, and his cat does as well. Uh, just going to on what page is it? The, the well, the very first point where the rat appears, it, it just doesn't look quite right. Its legs don't look quite right. Uh, the face looks a little strange. When it's leaping towards him, it looks okay, but the first shot of him, it doesn't look good. And then I was looking at the shot of the cat when it swats the wasp away. Mm. It, 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 it's almost uh, uh, anthropomorphic there. It almost looks like they're, they're, they're giving, he's giving it almost human movements. Yeah, yeah. I agree. You know, as I'm looking at some more of these pages... Um, some of the close-ups when like Wasp first kind of like reverts back to her normal and and Hank is holding her and there's like a close-up of them. Uh, I, I mentioned the um, the Dick Dylan comparison. Like some of this art also really looks like Murphy Anderson to me. Um, and again, that panel, like, the one that you just made mention of, looks almost like it should be in you know one of the romance comics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he looks uh, he looks like Kirk Douglas in that <laughs> image. Which, which is funny for Michael Douglas to to end up playing the character of Hank Pym. Yeah, it's ironic, but he does look a little bit like a like a young Kirk Douglas. Yeah. So yeah, I don't know. I'm seeing a whole lot of uh, inspiration from some of these uh, these older. Well, I mean, I guess they would have been contemporary at the time, uh, especially like Dick Dillon. But yeah, these guys that I associate with a ton of like DC, you know, Silver and Golden Age comics and everything, and now they're. Uh, now they're having. I, I think that's probably what uh, Craig P. Craig Russell was looking at when he was drawing this, or taking some inspiration from. And then the very last panel with Doctor Nemesis. Mm-hmm. Uh, originally, I was kind of struck by the fact that his proportions look a little just strange. But then, like I'm, I'm taking it from the point of view of that. That's almost showing him from Ant-Man's perspective, even though Ant-Man is in the shot. If mm-hmm. you were that small looking at him, you wouldn't see his proportions cleanly. Right, right. The hand you know? would be huge. It would be bigger than the head, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, I, you know, I think that's what he was going for there. And looking at it with that perspective, it makes the shot more impressive. Mm-hmm. Although the costume is just awful. <laughs> yeah, it is. Yeah, I know, I know Dr. Nemesis, he comes he was in a uh, he was in a story arc I think with um, with Bill Foster in Marvel Comics Presents I think in the 90s mm-hmm. the anthology book that they did yeah 
Uh, and I think that was sort of Dr. Nemesis's claim to fame. He was in like a, a, a longer story arc then. Yeah, well, he didn't have a lot in this one. No. Uh, yeah, I'm just I'm just opening up. Uh, I just did a quick Google Next search. Issue. Mm. He's uh, in the uh, Marvel database. Uh, <laughs> I, I just while you're looking that up, I just noticed I I'd never really paid attention to it before. But on the last page, the caption on the bottom corner when it says "Next Trial by Ordeal," what a horrible title. <laughs> well, that's that, that sounds to me uh, like you, you remember the TV show Police Squad. Yeah, yeah. When when they would say next next episode, and they'd come up with like a title like that, that's yeah. what it sounds like to me. So Doctor Doctor Nemesis was Michael Stockton. He's a scientist who discovered a way of looking into subatomic worlds, including one ruled by the dictator Tim Buba. Later, he became involved with a terrorist group AIM and was part of the criminal Monsieur Tetz attempt to steal Pym particles from Henry Pym, an encounter which resulted in Pym becoming trapped at ant size. Stockton took the opportunity to raid Pym's lab and steal his shrinking technology, becoming the criminal Dr. Nemesis, and eventually, after curing Pym, took the wasp hostage in order to force Pym to grant him access to Avengers Mansion and defeated Nemesis before he could steal the Avengers technology. So that's beyond this. I just want to see if there's a footnote that tells us when that is. Well, there's a few different areas where he appeared. He also appeared, it looks like, in Micronauts and Solo Avengers, which I'm guessing is that story that uh, that they just made reference to. But then after that, it says Marvel Comics presents 113 to 118, which is probably still employed by Stain International, using Eric Justin, the criminal called Goliath, as an underling. Nemesis clashed with Bill Forster, the second giant man. Forster succeeded in thwarting Stockton's plans for experimental mass acquisition unit, and Stockton and Justin were both jailed. What's an experimental mass acquisition unit? Yeah, that's what it is. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's a name. That's all it is. <laughs> but, he, you know, he's appeared a few times, apparently, so good for them. <laughs> yeah. not, not the most uh, auspicious of uh, introductions, though. Mm. But uh, again, you know, I, I still like, you know, like we're saying, I think in order to enjoy this storyline, you kind of have to accept it for the style of story that they're trying to tell. Yeah. If you're looking for, you know, something groundbreaking or, or you know, earth shattering, you're just not going to get it. But if you're just looking for, you know, low key entertainment, it's fairly it's pretty pretty much hits the mark on that, I think. Right. Right. I guess we could rate this one, and I like the cover, but you know it's almost like uh, it's pre- pretty much a given that I'm going to like anything John Romita draws. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't think it's like one of his very best. I just think you know it, it gives us something from the story, which is good. Uh, it gives you know it gives you kind of an action moment, even though it's against a kitty cat. Uh, but you know it, it's it's. It, it lays it out for you. I'm, I'm going to say B minus. It's not one of Romita's best, but uh, and and the biggest reason I'm not giving it a little higher grade is because I think he also kind of uh, either he or whoever inked it for him uh, should have done a better job on the cat. There's just not quite enough detail in there. There's just some lines to indicate fur, but I think it could have been a little better. Uh, the interior art, uh, you know, we talked about it at length. 
everything we said I, I kind of agree with. I think it does tell the story well, and I think it creates I, – I just – I like his crazy wasp. Yeah. I, I think I think he does a good job of making her menacing. Uh, I'm going to say a, just a regular B on the interior art because I, despite the criticisms I have of, of it, I real you know I really kind of like it. Uh, the story is small scale; it's nothing earth shattering, but it was entertaining. So I'm going to say a B on that as well, and I'm going to give the book overall a B. Um, I like the cover more than you. The cover for me is the best thing about the story. Um, I, I like the cover a lot, actually. I would give the cover an A minus. Um, is it does it compare to some of John Romita's best stuff? Absolutely not. But his best stuff is just some of the best comic book art out there. Um, so even just a, a kind of casual John Romita cover is is pretty good in my book. So it, it's it's fun. Yes, it's the two miniature heroes going up against a cat, and that's the level of peril. But I I I find humor in that. I I think it's a fun. So yeah, I'd give the cover an A minus. The interior art, um, I shouldn't hold this against it, but like the style was distracting me at times. It just it, it kept sort of like taking me out of it and making me think of other other books and other artists. So ah, I, I don't want to give it a B minus. I'll give the art a B, the interior art a B, um, and the story probably a B B plus. Um, yeah, for a lot of the things that you said too, I, I like it as a an adventure story. It doesn't feel like necessarily a super. It doesn't it doesn't feel like a conventional Ant Man story. It feels more like an Adam story to me. Um, but I like it for just being a kind of nice kind of costumed adventure story that that you know when you're shrunk down, all these you get a new kind of world of monsters, including giant bugs including rats and cats and things like that and that that type of story amuses me so i, I thought that was kind of fun all right um i think we we landed pretty much in the same area on it yeah yeah overall it'd be in the b range yeah so that's it for our ant-man and the wasp score episode hope you enjoyed it uh ryan thanks for coming on yeah absolutely thank you for having me oh my pleasure why don't you take a minute and tell everybody where they could find you uh, well, you can find me on the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I host several shows, many of which are in some form of hiatus at the moment. Um, but the latest and so far greatest one that I'm very happy to is Cheerscast, uh, which just launched recently. It is my uh, episode-by-episode review of my favorite TV sitcom of all time, Cheers. Uh, and... I am happy to say if you enjoy listening to Back to the Bins or uh, Is It Jaws, Paul will be my guest on uh, several episodes in the near future. At the time that this uh, at the time that this episode drops, you won't have appeared yet, um, but certainly um, by the time the month of August rolls around, you will be appearing. All right. Well, I, I enjoyed recording those with you, so uh, yeah. I, I hope people will tune in and listen to them. And I'm also a fan of the show Cheers, which we talk about in the episode, so I don't need yep. to go into it too much now. But uh, <laughs> yeah, as as we record this, the first episode has dropped, and that was a lengthy one. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I really enjoyed listening to it. I really enjoyed some of the insights in it. And, and, and uh, you know, it's funny because there were a couple of things said that I thought, hmm, that's kind of the polar opposite of what I was thinking. <laughs> but it makes total sense now that I hear it from these guys. Can I go back and re-record what I said with Ryan? 
<laughs> I think I think we'll get to that in context. Yeah, yeah. The first episode, there are numerous guests, and we have a lot of kind of expository stuff to get through with the context of the show. So the first episode is about an hour and a half. Uh, episodes after that are going to be closer to the forty-five minute mark. Um, so yeah. But it's a lot of fun, and and yeah, thank you. It's a fun show about a fun show. So yeah, there you go, there you go. So thank you for having me on this show, which is also a fun show. It's my pleasure. Thanks again for coming on. Thank you everybody for listening in, and we'll see you next week. Thank you so much for listening to our show, and we hope you'll continue to join us each and every week for more good old-fashioned comic book back issue awesomeness. You can contact Back to the Bins to leave feedback, comments, questions, suggestions, and criticisms via email at backtothebins at gmail.com or by joining the Back to the Bins group on Facebook. Back to the Bins is a proud affiliate of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, which you may find at www.twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is a registered trademark of Demanzo Corps of Milan, Italy. All rights reserved. Each and every month, the Two True Freaks Network produces dozens of new and exciting episodes which regularly reach tens of thousands of loyal listeners worldwide. Sponsorship and or advertising opportunities are available. Inquiries may be made via email to twotruefreaks at gmail.com. Please take a moment to stop by the twotruefreaks.com site and check out their many other fine podcasts, won't you? Thanks. And we'll see you next week. Yeah, I only had a chance to read half of it.